Good morning. Having fun? Okay, it's good. <laughs> I think it was uh, two years ago. I don't think we did this last year, but two years ago we started this, a little thing called COVID. Do you remember that? And uh, that forced us outside. But we had circles painted on the lawn. Remember that? You just had to stay in your circle. So thankful we don't have circles anymore. I'm uh, excited uh, to be able to worship outside with you. Uh, I was sharing, uh, I was teaching the uh, new members class this morning, and I was sharing with them that I first encountered Christ um, truly uh, when I was amongst God's people worshiping and uh, walked into a church not seeking the Lord. And uh, there I saw the people of God worshiping, and I immediately felt compelled that I need to find out more. So part of the reason I think we want to be outside is, is just to be, give a witness. As people drive by, people walk by, right? the people of God are here, and they're worshiping. And I pray that, that God might, uh, right? um, I, if you study the history of the English-speaking church, you will discover how important outdoor preaching was to people like John Wesley and, and George Whitfield, and, uh, and so I kind of, uh, it's exciting for me as a preacher to kind of stand in that tradition and be able to uh, speak to you this morning. So our, our text, we're going to pick up our study of uh, the epistle 1 John, and we'll find ourselves in chapter 2 today, 1 John chapter 2, we're just going to consider two verses this morning, and yet I really think if, if God gives us the ears to hear, these two verses are perhaps some of the most precious verses that God could give to his people. And I pray that he would do that work in your heart, even as we consider it. So John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, we're thankful for your word that we now can study. And we pray um, that your spirit would, would be in me as I declare it and be in those as we hear it and heed it. Pray that he would apply it to our lives, give us an understanding of it, let our hearts rejoice in its truth. Give us a will to follow after and uh, transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We thank you, even as we talk about sin today, for the mercy of our Lord. And uh, so we pray as Christ taught us, uh, be merciful to us sinners. For we ask him in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was on April 16, 1865, which was the morning after the assassination of President Lincoln, that 2,000 soldiers galloped out of Washington, D.C., in, in pursuit or hunt for the assassin, John Wilkes Booth. They found him, 25 soldiers that is, found him about 60 miles outside of D.C. where he had taken refuge in a tobacco barn in Port Royal, Virginia. The Secretary of War had given the soldiers strict orders that Booth was to be brought back alive, but he was well armed and fortified in that barn and was not coming with them. So finally, the soldiers gave the order to burn Booth out, and so soon the entire tobacco barn was ablaze, and Booth began to grow desperate at that point, and the soldier who was standing at the rear of the barn saw Booth raise his rifle as if he were taking aim to shoot, 
And that soldier, against the orders, raised his revolver and fired, the bullet striking Booth in the back of his head, almost in the exact same place where he had shot President Lincoln. Booth immediately dropped, and soldiers rushed into that burning barn and pulled him out and set his body on a nearby porch, everyone assuming he was dead, but someone just out of chance threw water on him to see if they could revive him, and they discovered that he was still alive. Booth, uh, delirious with pain, began to murmur. The attending soldier leaned down and heard him whisper these words. Tell my mother I thought I did what was best. And then afterwards, he asked his arms, which were at this point paralyzed, to be raised so that he could look at his own hands, which he could not move. And the last known words of John Wilkes Booth are these, useless, useless. A few hours later, as the sun crested the horizon, John Wilkes Booth was dead. I wonder if the last words of this man can be seen as a metaphor for life. Not, not that we're assassins, of course, but that when we get to the end of our life, how many will say, I thought I did what was best, only to discover that it was useless, that it was to no avail. I'd like to preach a sermon to you today for those who know they don't often do what is best. I don't know if there's anybody here like that. Anyone here that says, yeah, I actually don't always do what is best. I sometimes do what is wrong. The Bible calls such a person a sinner. So if there's any sinners here today, this sermon is for you. Now, if you think you do what is best, then, then this sermon probably won't help you at all. But for those who recognize, I, I struggle. I'm not the person I want to be. Anyone who think, you know, what, every once in a while you ever think, why, why am I so judgmental? Why, why, why do I get angry like I do? Why, why did I blow, blow my top with the kids again? Why, why do I gossip? Why am I so vain? Why am I anxious about the future? Why am I lying at times before I even recognize that I am? Why do, why do I keep failing to pray? Any, anyone here that ever has those thoughts? Why, why do I feel a need to make people think highly of me? Like, why do I sometimes fight the need to make you think I'm a good preacher? Why is that in my heart? Why do I continue to struggle with that? I don't, I don't know many moms here who think, what, I feel like I'm failing as a mom. Like, you, you, you go on the social media, and, and the mom over there, like, her kids are baking cupcakes while they sing hymns, right? And the, the, that other mom, you know, the kids are citing the catechism while they mop the floor, and you can't get your kids to flush the toilet, right? Any, any dads out there that think, I, I committed myself to lead my family more faithfully. I was going to guide them. I was going to pray with my kids, but I'm just not doing it. I wasn't going to look at that, and I clicked on it. I said I wasn't. I don't know if there's anyone that, that ever gets that feeling that you, know, you might even cry out, my God, my God, why would you accept me? Well, this sermon is for you. I pray that it will be a comfort to sinners. As John here draws our attention to the glorious work of Jesus Christ. He will focus on two aspects of Christ's work. He'll focus on the past work of Christ on the cross. And he'll focus on the present work of Christ in heaven. We'll see that Jesus, if I could use this language, 
is both our lamb and our lawyer, our attorney. And John wants you to know this out of his great love for God's people. Look how he even begins this text here in verse 1 when he says, my little children, my little children. This communicates, of course, John's age, who was probably in his 80s, if not his 90s, when he wrote this. And so everyone's a little child to him at that point. But it also communicates his affection, doesn't it? As he calls them, my little children. He certainly loves them. And I think we need people like this in our life who have been following Christ for a long time and love us and willing to speak truth into our lives when we sin. There's two truths I want to consider for sinners this morning. Uh, the first being that John tells us that our ambition it should be to not sin. Our ambition should be to not sin. Look what he says here in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So John here is telling us the purpose of his letter. He's got about four or five of them. We saw in verse 4 of chapter 1, his purpose of his letter was that our joy would be complete. But now we read that his purpose of the letter is to keep you from sinning. John's saying, I don't want you to sin. I want you to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. I, I don't want you to experience pain and anguish of sin. I want you to know joy and the fullness of life and obedience. That's why I'm writing this. Right? I'm writing this letter to keep you from sinning. And, of course, the truth is, Christian, we don't need to keep on sinning. I think that's one of the principles John's telling us. Sin doesn't have mastery over us anymore. We once were enslaved, but now we've been made free from the power of sin. Consider Paul's words in Romans 6. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin. So, Christian, we've been freed from the power of sin. I like the story that uh, Barnhouse told long ago of a sailing vessel where the captain of the vessel went mad, went crazy. And so they had to lock up the captain in his quarters, and the first mate became the new captain. And so the old captain at this point had no authority over them, and now the first mate, the new captain, had all the authority. The problem is, is that the old captain didn't agree. And so even from his quarters, he would constantly bark out orders to the crew scream and yell and, and, and make such a fuss that they became easily distracted. And the, though the crew had kind of an inclination uh, to obey their old captain, they, they needed to teach themselves that no matter what he said, he had no authority anymore. And the reality is the flesh continues to shout its orders like that old captain to us, but it has no authority over you. You don't have to obey the flesh. Instead, we need to train ourselves to listen to our new captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John writes this letter to help us, to help us. I write this letter. Why are you writing, John? So that you may not sin. So John, in John's mind, he thinks this letter, 1 John, can help you, to help keep you from sinning. I, I think that's somewhat amazing, right? The, the Bible says, if you, listen, if you were to say, God, is there a book that would help me not to sin? He would say, yes, probably many of them, but 1 John is written specifically to keep you from sinning. Now, of course, we need to be careful here because we're not talking about sinless perfection. This is why we always interpret the Bible in its context. I learned, heard in seminary uh, scores of times, a text without a context becomes a pretext. Right? In other words, you could take a text out of its context and you could get it to communicate anything you probably want to. You have to interpret the Bible in the context in which it's written. So we know that John, from the context, we know this, that John's not talking about sinless perfection, because he says just one verse earlier, you see, we considered this last time, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
or verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John is saying no one can say they've reached perfection. No one can say they've stopped sinning. No one can say that they're totally innocent. So when he says, I write this so that you may not sin, he's not saying that you'll reach perfection, but he's saying that not sinning should be your ambition, even though you might, even though you will never reach it. Like a musician's ambition is to hit all the notes, right? even though sometimes you won't. A student's ambition is to answer all the questions correctly. A baseball player's ambition is to never strike out. A, a, a soccer player's ambition, I think, is to not use their hands. Okay? Right? But these are things that you might never, these are goals that you strive for, but you, you might never reach it. You seek it, but you, you won't get it. So when he says, I, I write this so you don't sin, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about ambition. I want you to want to stay away from sin. I think the question, Christian, we have to ask, is that your ambition? Is that your goal? To stay away from sin. And so I think far too many Christians have a very light view of sin. And we, we sometimes say, well, that's just the way God made me. Right? As if sin is part of my design. Or we say things like Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. As if forgiveness will not lead to a radical transformation in our character. Or we say things like God hates Sin, but not the sinner, as if those two are totally separate. I understand there's some truth in these slogans, but I think they're often used to minimize sin. And sin becomes no big deal. Maybe sin was a big deal in your life 20 years ago. Maybe you were burdened by your sin, but now you've got kids and a mortgage, and you've got you know, boss breathing down your neck, and just sin's all, not all that important to you. Just shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's just, it's just who I am. It's just, I'm not going to do any better at this. It's just how it goes. To which John says, I've given you a book so that you wouldn't do it. In fact, he tells us what sin is. There's a famous verse in 1 John 3, 4 when he defines sin for us. And he says, sin is lawless. It's mutiny. It's rebellion. Sin is treason. And I think there's probably nothing more awful than treason against our good and holy creator. So my hope is that this book would help us see the horror of sin that we might turn from it. That should be our ambition. But of course, that raises the question, what happens when we don't turn from sin? What happens when we do it? Well, we see secondly that John tells us we have an advocate when we sin, right? So just when he wants us to see the seriousness of sin, that we might flee from sin, he acknowledges here in verse one that we won't always do this. I mean, you continue on, he says, but if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so uh, his longing is, I don't want you to sin, but I know that you might sin. And if you do sin, you need not despair because you have an advocate on your behalf. And his advocacy, as we'll see, is not based upon what we've done, but based upon what he's done. For we discover in verse 2, he is our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins, John writes, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we see that Jesus is, is, is there for us when we do sin in two ways. One, he's our righteous advocate, and two, he's our propitiatory sacrifice. In other words, he is both lawyer and lamb. So think about, first of all, that when we do sin, we should not lose heart because Jesus is our advocate, as he says there in verse 1. We have an advocate. Maybe your translation, this is a difficult word to translate. Maybe your translation says, one who pleads for you or one who speaks in our defense. 
It's a, the Greek word that some of you will be familiar with, parakletos. You, you ever heard that word, the paraclete? Um, we, we hear that word from the lips of Jesus in John 14. When he's, this is called the farewell discourse of Jesus, he's getting ready to ascend to heaven, and he says to, I think it's in verse 16, he says to his, his gathered disciples, when I leave, I will send you another paraclete, another paraclete, another advocate, sometimes it's translated helper, friend, counselor, um, uh, um, uh, uh, lawyer, and, and things in those, those, those type of um, ways to describe someone who comes alongside of you. Now, if Jesus says, I'll send you another advocate, well, then that means Jesus considered himself an advocate. So we actually, Christian, you actually have two advocates, don't you? You have one who indwells you, who speaks to you on behalf of God, helps you understand scripture, convicts you of sin, and so forth. And you have one in heaven who speaks to God on behalf of you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our advocate with the Father. We read in Hebrews 7 that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So right now, Jesus has a continued ministry. He's advocating for you. From the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. That is, he has finished paying for our sins. But that doesn't mean Jesus stopped working. He continues to intercede for us, interceding in heaven for you. And, and uh, this is why I draw the metaphor that Jesus, in some sense, acts as a lawyer, a, a defense attorney. He stands alongside his client and defends him, right? You hire an attorney because your attorney has the ability to talk to a judge for you, who can make a case for you in the way you can't. And Jesus is before the Father, evidently, in John, as John explains here in verse 1, advocating for us. Now, we need an advocate because we also have an accuser, and his name is Satan. The book of Revelation tells us, Revelation tells us that Satan accuses us before God night and day. So there the devil is accusing us night and day. And this, by the way, is probably the only time the devil doesn't need to lie when he is accusing you. He doesn't need to make up stuff as he accuses you before the Father. He just kind of tells the Father what you're doing and, uh, and tells, tells the truth. And he's going to whisper, it seems, uh, according to this metaphor, into the Father's ear. Did you hear what they said? Did you hear what they did? Have you been watching how they're acting? And so he's accusing you there before the Father. So the picture, I think, as you put all this together, you have this, this heavenly courtroom. God's the judge. We're the defendant. Satan's the accuser. And it's very clear that we have broken the law over and over and over and over again. Jesus was asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, how, how are you doing that? How are you, how are you doing just one day and loving God like that? Or love your neighbor as yourself? Like scheme for your neighbor's good in the same way you scheme and plan for your own good? How, how are you doing on that one? Or you shall not bow to an idol in your heart? You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not hate or lust or steal or lie. You shall not covet your neighbor's car or house or job or grades or athletic ability. I think if we're honest, we would, we would say with Paul, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And if that's you in the court of heaven, I mean, how are you going to plead at this point? I mean, what else can you say? Uh, I'm guilty. I, I deserve to be sent away forever. I mean, I don't know if any, if any of you have been to court. Court is very intimidating. Um, it's all sit up, stand down, and it's all the guards, all you know, the bailiffs, all all around. And this man with a gavel has final authority about what he's about to pronounce. I mean, can you imagine? That's you. You're a defendant standing for the judge, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, and the evidence is laid out before you. 
wouldn't you want someone at that point to rise and stand alongside of you and say, may I speak on your behalf? Well, you have such a one. Jesus says, I'll advocate for you. Now, Christian, that ought to fill your heart with hope. Because sometimes we become so discouraged, we think there's no hope for me. I keep going back to the same old sin. I keep going back to the same old sin. I keep going back to the same old sin. And the Bible says he is speaking on your behalf. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Not, Not if anyone does sin, you know, here's what you need to do. Or if anyone does sin, here's the steps to take. Or here's the sacrifices to make. Or here's the penance to pay. You see how different Christianity is from the world's religion, right? If you sin, if you're in trouble, if you're coming to hardship, if you, you mess up, here's what you are to do, the world says. Christianity alone says, if you sin, you have an advocate. Therefore, Christian, you can look away from your history. You can look away from your heaping record of debt. You can look away from your smoldering pile of wicked acts and look to heaven, and there in the throne room, you will find you have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you let that take root of your heart, you will see the glory of that. And by the way, you notice he tells us something about the advocate there in verse 1? Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous, right? And maybe I've watched too many lawyer shows, but he's not some slimy advocate finding the loopholes. He's not working a backroom deal. There's no plea bargain. He's not that kind of advocate. He's righteous. He's good and he's godly. In him, there is no sin. And as our righteous advocate, he only makes a righteous case. So he doesn't come to you and say, listen, don't tell me what happened. I don't want to know. I don't care if you're innocent or guilty. Right? I, I just know how to get you off. So you just keep your stuff to yourself and let me do my thing and, and then we'll get you off. He doesn't excuse your sin. Right? He, he, he doesn't say the things that we like to say. I, you know, I know he's cheating on his wife, but deep down he's a good guy. Right? Uh, you know, I know she lies to her parents. Uh, I know his heart is full of vanity and pride, but you dig really, really deep down there. You'll find goodness somewhere down there. I know I'm hateful and bitter, but you know, if traffic was a little easier, maybe I want to be that way. That's not, that's, not, that's not the argument Christ is making. He doesn't excuse your sin. He's not looking for loopholes. He's not looking for mitigating circumstances to your sin. He's not pleading your innocence. Most certainly, he knows us. He knows what we've done, and he still advocates on our behalf. And by the way, he will win your case. He wins every case he takes. He will get the guilty acquitted. You say, how is that possible? Well, because the lawyer is also the lamb, and he is the propitiation for your sins, which is what John tells us there in verse 2, isn't it? As he explains, he, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, propitiation is a strange word, right? I call it a propitiatory sacrifice. Maybe you're thinking, I wish he would speak English, right? What, what does that mean? What is Propitiation is a word in the Bible that's used four different times. It's the book of Hebrews, the book of Romans. It'll be twice in 1 John. We'll see it again in chapter 4. And to propitiate simply means to turn away wrath. It means to absorb anger. So Jesus, as our propitiation, turns away God's wrath from us. He absorbs it in himself. Now you might think, well, does, does God have wrath? Is that true of God? Yeah. God has wrath. God is angry and wrathful at sinners who sin. 
And it's hard to read the Bible for just a matter of minutes without discovering this. You can go to the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, the book of Judges most clearly. Book of Revelation, you consider Jesus. Or read, read the sermons of John the Baptist. I mean, what was his feel-good message, right? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come, he said. Right? God has wrath. And by the way, this should make sense. Don't you feel wrath towards those who do evil? Don't you have a sense of wrath? I mean, someone goes in and shoot up, shoots up a school. Don't you feel a sense of wrath within you? Wrath in service of righteousness is good and it's appropriate. Now, of course, other people say, well, I thought God was loving. I, th I thought he was loving. Now you're telling me he's wrathful. Well, I ask you, can you be loving and angry at the same time? Can you? If you're unsure, ask any parent here and they will tell you. Yeah, you can be loving and angry at the same time. And so God, listen, God was angry or wrathful towards you because of your sin. Paul writes, by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I think that's the worst news in the world, that God has wrath on us because of our sin. The best news in the world, therefore, is that God made a way for that wrath to be averted by pouring it out on Jesus. Because the same God, out of his love for you, sent Jesus to absorb that wrath, to receive God's wrath in your place as our sacrifice. So what John is doing here is he going, he, his imagery is changing. In verse 1, it's the courtroom. Now it's to the temple he's gone. As he's explained that Jesus is not simply our advocate, but our sacrifice. He's not simply our lawyer, but he's our lamb. And the anger of God that was against me because of my sin was not suppressed. It was not ignored. It was not swept under the rug. It was spent on Jesus. All of the judgment that you deserve has been put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He's exhausted it. He's expended it, he's drained it, he's depleted it, he's absorbed it. There is, therefore, no more wrath for you. And I'll tell you, there, there, listen, there is no love in, I know you've heard this a thousand times, but Christian, there's no love in the world like that. That Jesus would receive that on your behalf. That the love of God and the justice of God meet in the crucifixion in the Son of God. And so we sometimes sing, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ, I lay. I love the picture that the prophet Zechariah gives us of the high priest Joshua. You can read this in Zechariah chapter 3. And the high priest is standing before God in filthy garments because of his sin and the sin of his people. And there Satan accuses him before God. And the Lord responds to Satan I reject your accusation, Satan. And he commands his angels to come remove the filthy garments from, Zechariah, uh, from Joshua and clothe him in white. And God declares of Zechariah, he is a burning stick whom I have plucked from the fire. Isn't that stunning? It can be said of us that we are a burning stick that God has plucked us from the fire. So when Satan says, you see what he did this week? You see what she said this week? You see what he thought this week? God says to him, I rebuke you, Satan. I have plucked her from the fire. And by the way, just not you, but sinners all over the world. For he tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't think this is somewhat a confusing uh, verse. I think people stumble over this. I don't think he's saying that God's wrath against every person in the world is propitiated. Because then there will be no more wrath against anyone. I think all persons will be saved. And 
course, Jesus told us that we are to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. So in Christ's mind, many will not be saved. All those who refuse to trust in Jesus won't be saved. So what does he mean when he says he's the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world? I think this is just an idiom to mean far and wide, right? all parts of the world. And the reason I believe this is that's how the Bible uses that phrase. For instance, in the book of Romans, we read faith is proclaimed in the whole world. That doesn't mean every single person has heard of the faith, but the faith is spreading far and wide. Luke will tell us the whole world went to be registered. But of course, no, no one from China or India came for that census. Just the, it, it was far and wide. Or, or 1 John, we'll find in chapter 5, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Well, clearly not every single person is under his power. Just his power is far and wide. So when he says he propitiated the sins of the whole world, not just your sins, but the sins of the whole world, sinners everywhere, throughout this world that Christ has died for, which is why we are so keen to support the mission works in which we do and have mission partnerships and send people on missions because Christ says, I have other sheep out there that they need to hear my voice as well, that he has died for their sins. Of course, if Jesus died for the sins of the world, then what that tells us is that Anyone in the world can be saved through him. That, that Jesus is the only one who can save anyone anywhere at any time. I mean, there, there is no other God in some other heaven who saves some other way. There is only one advocate. There is only one sacrifice. There is only one mediator between God and man. It is Jesus Christ. And so I, I would tell you, if you think, well, maybe there's another way, I, you can search the world over if you must, but I, you'll find no other Savior other than Jesus. Jesus is our propitiation. That's his past completed work on this earth. And Jesus is our advocate. That's his present ongoing work in heaven. Now, I just want to show you how both those works are combined to give us great hope. Because I mentioned earlier that Jesus, our advocate, clears the guilty. He's going to win our case. You say, how will Jesus win our case if I'm guilty? What's the advocacy that he makes? Well, the advocacy, of course, is not based upon what we've done but based upon what he's done. So when we, sin, we say, well, Jesus is interceding for us in heaven, what, uh, what does that look like? You ever wonder what is that? I mean, is he going to God and say, please just give him another chance? You know, for my sake, we just kind of, you, know, uh, you know, give him another day. Uh, we we kind of look beyond that. I, I know he keeps doing it, but for, for my sake, will you just bear with him one more time? I mean, how, how often can he keep that up? Isn't there a point where the father says, that's just enough. I just, how many times do we have to go over this? That's enough, I'm done. That's not his advocacy. Listen, Jesus Christ in heaven is not asking for mercy toward you. But you only ask for mercy if you have no case to make. You only ask for mercy when the law is against you. And, and you, you have no other plea other than to throw yourself what, on, upon the mercy of the court. But you see, Christ has a case. The law is no longer against you because Jesus Christ has been punished for our sins. So he intercedes for me and says, yes, Father, Stephen sinned again, but I've paid for it. And, and then he lays out the evidence of his propitiation, the crown of thorns and the lashing and the mocking and the ridicule and the parading and the, the, the wounds in his hands and his feet, the cry of completion, it is finished. Those sins have been punished in me. In other words, Christian, please understand when we think about the intercession of Jesus in heaven, your advocate is not asking for mercy for you. He's asking for justice. His cross, he went to his cross because of his mercy, so that he can advocate 
by demanding justice. God, like this is Jesus' advocation for me. God, give him justice, and justice demands he be forgiven. Your justice demands that he be forgiven because those sins have already been punished in me. I died for those sins, that greed and lust and anger. I died for him, that complaining and nagging and worry. I died for him. So he gets the guilty acquitted, not by skirting justice, but by fulfilling it. And we've, in, in some sense, we've already seen this. Remember 1 John 1, 9, you could just a couple verses earlier. He says, if you confess your sins, God is sentimental and soft to forgive us our sins. Right? That's not what it says. If we confess our sins, God is merciful and kind to forgive our sins. No. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. To forgive our sins. You see, because of the work of Jesus, God's justice demands our forgiveness. God's justice demands our acquittal because our punishment has already been paid. So Paul will ask, who shall bring the charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against you, Paul asks. The answer? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn, Paul asks. Who will condemn you? Answer? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And Christian, I think that the more in which we understand this, the more in which we embrace this, that your, your life might be transformed because of these truths. Right? If you have a problem with sin, and I think you do, you have in these verses a warning and a comfort. You have a warning against sin, verse 1. You have a comfort that Christ our advocate has taken God's wrath off us, verse 2. So you let the warning guard you from presumption and lead you to vigilance in your Christian life. And you, you let the comfort guard you from despair and lead you in hope against this battle and sin. In fact, I would suggest as we end our time this morning, two specific ways in which you can apply these, this truth to your life. One is how you deal with your guilt. I don't, I don't know if you ever have that voice in your head that says, listen, you call yourself a Christian? If, if they only knew the thoughts you have or what you did this week or how you spoke to him this week or how you lied to your parents this week, right? You ever, you ever have that, that voice? Right? You think God really is going to accept someone like you living the way in which you're living? What, what do you do when that voice comes and accuses you? I, I think you have three options. You could deny your guilt. Right? You could say, I've done nothing wrong. It's who I am. I'm not perfect. No big deal. This is what we often do. I think we do this in a thousand ways. Right? Nothing to feel guilty about here, we might say. I'm not sure how long that will work. You could try to work it off. That's your second option. My sin is real, but I'll make up for it. This is the prodigal son who returns to the father. You know, I've sinned against you. Make me your servant. I'll, I'll work off my debt. You think that might work? I mean, you're really going to work off <laughs> what you owe God? I, I, I think your debt is insurmountable and only growing. So, so what do you do when you hear this inner voice? Do you really think God will accept someone like you? I think the scripture tells us we look away from ourselves and we look to Christ. Christ Jesus is the one who has died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He is advocating for you. 
when you feel that guilt rising up, you go, listen, I, I don't mean this metaphorically. Actually, you go, Christian, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, and you meditate and pray according to this verse. When you feel this coming upon you, that Christ is my propitiation and Christ is my advocate. What is it the hymn writer wrote? I think we sang this today, didn't we? When Satan tempts me due to, to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Second, I think if you apply these truths to your life, you will find renewed power to obey. So you'll find a way to deal with your guilt when you do sin. You'll find strength to overcome sin, to actually turn from sin. Again, I think there's typically three reasons why we obey. Some obey out of fear. They're afraid of what's going to happen if they don't. Perhaps God's love is conditional, right? Perhaps if I don't obey, he's going to turn on me. Some obey out of duty. It's just the right thing to do. The Christian doesn't obey out of fear or duty. The Christian obeys out of love. We obey not because we're afraid or duty-bound. We obey because we want to obey. We're not afraid of what's going to happen when we don't obey. We have an advocate. Right? We don't obey because we think God's love is conditional, that, it, that God's love will just run out if we keep blowing it. Justice has been satisfied. We obey because we... Uh, we, we don't obey, rather, not because we're afraid we're going to lose his love. You obey because you have his love. You see the love you have. You see what he's done for you. You can't lose it. He's died for you. And there is only one who is standing between you and an eternity separated from God. And his name is Jesus, who gave up everything for you, who took on the wrath of God for you. And the more you understand that, the more you meditate on that, you, you will find this love growing in your heart. You say, how can I sin against a love like that? His love will constrain your obedience and give you a delight to actually follow him. This is how, what we talk about, gospel-centered living. We find power to do what God calls us to do the more we see of his love and commitment to us. It was William Cooper who wrote long ago, How long beneath the law I lay, in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. But to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen Christ's beauty, are joined to part no more. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for the great and mighty work of our Lord Jesus Christ that he, knowing our sin, has come to this world to die for us, that he might absorb the wrath of God upon himself, that he might be our propitiation, he might take it all upon himself in order that he might advocate for us before you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What a glorious truth that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. Knowing this, Father, I pray that you would help us to turn from sin and to pursue after righteousness, that we would live a life that pleases God, that pleases you, our Father.
because of the love in which we have received. And we pray for those here who are outside of Christ, and we, we just ask that you would show them not only your holiness and indeed your wrath against sin and sinners, but your love for them as well, that they need not work their way to heaven. They cannot work their way to heaven, but that they might find salvation and forgiveness of sin and eternal life only in faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering their life to him in repentance. Father, we pray that these truths might weigh heavy upon us and fill our hearts with joy, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing, He is Lord.